following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I'm going to read a couple of different sections to give you the sense of chapters 29 and 30 of 1 Samuel. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. And as the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, The commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years since he deserted to me? And I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders said, Send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? And then just verse 11 of that chapter, uh, David had to depart because of this rejection We read, So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. And then continuing in chapter 30, Now when David and his men came to Ziklag, that's the town where they were staying, on the third day the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire, and had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both great and small. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had been taken up captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the wife of Nabal of Carmel. And David, the widow, that is, of Nabal of Carmel, and David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his own sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And the Lord answered, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, 
where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men. And then the conclusion, so as not to read all of it here, but 17 through 20. And David came to the Amalekites and struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. He also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. This is God's word. We might recall a little-noticed passage in another Old Testament book, Amos chapter 5, when that prophet is telling about someone in a position of danger, multiple dangers, and his picture there is of someone who runs away from a ravening lion only to meet a marauding bear. And then the man enters what seems to be the safety of his home and leans his hand against the wall of his own house and is bitten by a poisonous serpent. Well, I think those images might resemble David in these two chapters that we've read of here. He seems to escape from one rather impossible circumstance only to run immediately into something far worse. And yet with his hopes collapsing, David rediscovers in an important way here the salvation of the Lord his God in a most desperate personal hour. I've observed that Christians, much like David, are often very worldly about prayer. We might make many claims for prayer. We might sing hymns about prayer, but I have seen and certainly have to put myself in the same category, that we often don't do the praying we should do until the crisis comes, until the circumstances are relatively desperate. Then we run for prayer like we would for a fire extinguisher, to put out a fire, which might actually be a fire more of our own making than anything else. Can you really say that David's prayerlessness leading up to this crisis is so very different from your own life. Quite often we get in trouble because of some scheme we have tried to cause to happen for ourselves and it all crumbles, it goes apart, and instead of going to prayer, we go to another scheme. And we say, well, what I did the first time didn't work, let's try plan B. Maybe by the time you get to plan C, you might think about prayer. I have mentioned already, and I don't apologize for the repetitiveness of the theme of repentance in the life of David. I've said to you that if you would remember anything about David and Saul, you should remember a man who knew how to repent and a man who never even once truly repented. The great event of, of repentance in David's life, of course, is still to come. When he's king and he commits sin with Bathsheba of adultery and really murder because of what he does with her husband, 
and he comes to a dramatic and total repentance that is spelled out in Psalm 51, the great repentance chapter of the Bible. This is before that, but I would say that second only to that is the repentance that we witness here at this time in the ruins of Ziklag. And I would ask you to learn something of what true repentance looks like from this today. First of all, as we look at these two chapters together, we see the severe predicament of a vacation away from prayer. Now, David was never truly and actually the ally of King Achish of Gath. He pretended to be. He gave that impression, and apparently he was quite successful at it because Achish really thought, David has been my friend. He's been with me. He's done everything I asked him to do. I can count on his loyalty. We think of Achish as just not being very smart. He was naive. He was able to be gulled by David's behavior as he went out raiding against desert tribes who were actually Achish's friends when Achish thought the whole time he was raiding against the Israelites who David would not fight against. And he played this cat and mouse game, more or less walking a tightrope of fooling Achish while staying away from Saul and staying safe from Saul's hand against him. He relied on his wits. He relied on an unholy partnership. You know, the New Testament tells us to not be allied in our closest relations with unbelievers because sooner or later we're going to have to go different ways. And here was an alliance that was not a true alliance for a man of God. And I will remind you, as I've said already, that there was no word at all in this 16-month period of time while David lived among the Philistines that he worshiped God, that he prayed, and in fact the name of God did not even appear in the chapter, uh, two chapters before here, 27, when we were seeing this thing being set up. No psalms are known to have been written in this time. David simply put his spiritual life on neutral and coasted. And he did achieve a certain level of worldly security. He, he was safe from attack. He kept Saul at bay. But in that pseudo-safety, I think he could not have imagined that a day was coming when his loyal soldiers, and these men were loyal to David, they had sacrificed to be with him. When those very men would talk about stoning him because of the predicament that he brought them into. Now remind us, King Saul is, meanwhile, the contrast between these is greater and greater. King Saul is militarily weakened, spiritually weakened, and the two are absolutely related. Saul could no longer turn to God and say, oh God, lead me, God, help me. He had known only silence from God because of his many sins against the Lord. And now we, we found, I'm not emphasizing the chapter, but you might go back and read 28 and see Saul vainly looking for some kind of advice. Somebody tell me what to do. Put your blessing on me. Who does he go to? He goes to a spiritualist medium, Saul, who had actually passed an edict banishing spiritualism from his realm is found consulting one called a witch who calls up the dead. And sure enough, somehow, by God's providence, the ghost or 
the apparition of Samuel the prophet comes to basically condemn Saul. He found no comfort, no guidance. He was a God-forsaken man. Well, then the day came for the battle to form that really took Saul down in the end, and we'll see that in another week. Five Philistine kings united all their troops, and apparently there were thousands of them. This was a big battle. This wasn't, you know, just a few hundred coming out for a skirmish. This was a full-scale military movement. And the Philistines were, were really good, by the way, with chariots. And they situated this battle on the ground they chose, level ground where the chariots could operate, and they rolled out their forces many, many, many more men than Israel had as they came to face them. Achish, of course, summons David and says, hey, David, come join the fun. I know what you think of Saul. This will be your chance to see him go down. We're going to kill him. We're going to completely overcome him. And he's able to think that that this is just fine to have David and his 600 fighters joining in. Well, you see David now in a trap. He's really between a rock and a hard place. He's fooled Achish, but the other Philistine commanders don't have the same confidence. And they say, Achish, look, what's going on? We know this guy. Do you really think we want 600 Hebrews on our right flank or our left flank so that in the midst of battle they can turn around and attack us from behind? Are you crazy? And it is these objections that causes David to be rejected. If you read the Bible with totally secular eyes, you might say, wow, what a lucky break. David, you must lead a charmed life. Look how you got out of that. What good luck. Well, I would tell you there was no luck involved whatsoever. We are asked to see entirely the providence of God in this whole thing that even though David was living deceitfully, even though he was dodging left and right, covering himself with lies, Scripture makes it clear God was divinely delivering and preparing this man to be his king. But first, he must go, so to speak, out of the frying pan and into the fire. And he does have to pay for all the deceit that he's been doing. And we read of him going back to this village of Ziklag. The Philistines were all headed for the northeast towards the plain of Jezreel. And David was going back to the southwest to the wilderness, heading sort of in the general direction of Egypt where Ziklag was out in the middle of nowhere. And you can just imagine the spirit of his men thinking, oh, well, great, we didn't have to fight Saul after all. This is just fine. We get to go home and relax while the Philistines and the Israelites are dying up there. And then somebody, looking ahead in the direction they're going, sees a plume of black smoke. And the men know how close they are to the place where their homes are. And perhaps they think about the small guard force that they left behind, only a few to guard the town And maybe the word Amalekite comes into their head because that word Amalekite was fully equal to the words ISIS to us today. The Amalekites were some of the worst of the opportunistic terrorists. They preyed upon the weak. They came in like vultures and 
preferred to fight secretly and fight where they would not face stiff opposition. Some witness, some spy had seen the town unprotected. And so you can imagine David and his men suddenly going into gallop mode as they took off for Ziklag, thinking, what is happening? Our families are there, our wives are there, our children are there. And they reach the town and find it a burning ruin. And none of their families present, and their goods sacked and dragged off. And the text tells us the extreme of their reaction. David and his men wept aloud until they had no more strength with which to weep. And David was distressed doubly because his men began to talk of stoning him. David, we trusted you. We didn't think you'd ever lead us into a place like this. And here's David, not yet 30 years old, responsible for these 600 men and all their families. And he's suddenly in the worst moment of extremity in his whole life up until now. Even his stalwart friends are blaming him and ready to kill him. Well, I doubt if you've been in quite that exact circumstance. But maybe you can think of something in your life, your career, your family, where it seems like the bottom has fallen out of plans that you have had. And maybe you weren't necessarily being deceitful or lying like David with a false alliance and so on. But things you hoped for and things you sought to achieve just all went wrong. If you've ever been in an experience anything like this, I hope that you will think back or maybe think right now. And when the bottom dropped out and you seemed to land on a hard rock of a place, I pray that you might be able to realize and find out that the rock you landed on is the Lord your God. Because precisely in this hour, secondly, I want you to see that active work of God's deliverance. It wasn't good luck. It wasn't mere chance. It was the plan of God working. God, whose spirit actually, I'm sure, caused those Philistine commanders to speak up and push David away from the battle. They didn't just speak that accidentally. We are so unconscious of the things God is doing, even through people who oppose us and through negative circumstances that are shaping our lives and bringing the government of God to pass, even though we don't see it, maybe until long after it happens. And God was truly making what we would call the wrathful actions of men to eventually sing out his praise here. There's a verse in 2 Timothy 2.13 that says, even when we believe not, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It was the deliverance of God that was being seen hard and bitter and agonizing as it was for David to go through it. I would say the climax of our story comes in the third place in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6. And it's a unique climax because it doesn't seem climactic. In fact, it's so quiet you could read this story and almost not even notice it. But if you would read it, 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, in the midst of the whole context of what I've tried to paint for you last weekend this, and read these words, David 
strengthened himself in the Lord his God. This indeed is climactic. This is a summit for him as we see in him the power of authentic repentance. He's like a man who awakes from a nightmare, you know, in this, in this situation. I mean, what happened at Ziklag, he had been living in a bad dream with Achish, and then the disaster at Ziklag is like waking up from a nightmare to find out your bed is on fire. But even in the midst of that horrible situation, even in the midst of the muttered curses of his men and the bitter taste of the disaster of his own folly and his own bad choices, David now sought the Lord his God. Do you notice a little tiny word that you need to learn to watch for in Scripture? A little conjunction spelled B-U-T. All this bad stuff was happening, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That's a momentous word. It often is in the Bible. This is true. This is true. This is negative. This is terrible. I hate this that's going on. But, and then fill in the blank a lot of times in Scripture. But I will turn for the first time in over a year and pray to my God. I will listen to my God. I will obey my God. That's what makes this a tremendous turnaround. It's real repentance. You could say David hit rock bottom, but God is the rock at the bottom that he hit. We don't think he was necessarily writing about this situation alone, but but in Psalm 40, verse 2, he might have been summarizing this when David wrote the words, The Lord turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me from a slimy pit out of mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth. You know, true biblical repentance is much more than just saying to God or to someone else, I'm sorry. I think of an example of a person not in our congregation who came to a place where indeed he was caught, exposed for some terrible things going on, hypocritical things. And he very quickly said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But many would question, what does I'm sorry mean? Is it deep contrition? Is it deep sorrow for the sin? Or is it simply what you say when you get caught? And you kind of pick up the lamp of grace and rub the lamp and God the genie comes up to expose forgiveness for you. Or maybe repentance is kind of like the TV commercial that says, take two a leave and it will numb the pain all day long. Just say, I'm sorry. I would contend with you that David was doing something much more than that when it says he found strength in the Lord, his God. In fact, I want to remind you of another little three-letter word besides but that's here, the word his. His God. This was not David's first meeting with God. This was a reunion, not an introduction. 
David was coming back to the God he had departed from. And it was him who had moved, David, not God. It was David who had strayed and David who had to turn back. He had been away from prayer for quite a while. But quickly, once more, he understood what prayer was. You might say, in a manner of speaking, it's like riding a bicycle. I can't really remember the last time I rode a bicycle. Maybe the picture of me riding a bicycle would strike you as comic. I don't know. But I can assure you I knew how to ride a bicycle. And if I got on one, I'm pretty sure I could go in a forward direction without falling over. You don't forget how to ride a bicycle. A man or woman of God doesn't forget how to find God in prayer. It should be a familiar thing. True repentance means seeing my own foolish ways and the disasters I might have brought on myself and the contrast between them and the way God wants me to live and saying, I'm the one that has to turn around, oh God, here I am. Just like that prodigal son in the New Testament. Remember how he came back? It wasn't, in a sense, he prepared himself. He prepared his speech, but it wasn't a speech that came back and said, okay, Father, I know I wasted half the estate, and I know you're probably really upset with me, but, you know, actually a lot of it was your fault to begin with and my older brother who always gave me a hard time, and and here are all my excuses. No, none of that. Remember how he came back? I have no excuse. I have no plea. I deserve nothing. If you could find a corner of the barn and let me sleep in the moldy straw, that would be all right. Throw me a bread crust once in a while, Father. I don't deserve anything. That's repentance. And that, I believe, is the manner in which David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And you're immediately aware of the change. What does he do? He reaches for the priest, Abiathar, and says, bring the ephod. I could spend five minutes explaining the history of ephods, but we think this is a garment worn for prayer. And it signifies prayer for sure. And David says, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the Lord, what's the next step? Should I go after these people? That's my natural instinct as a military commander. But maybe that's wrong. I've been doing so many wrong things. I'd better ask God. And the Lord says, go. David, go. And actually, as we read this, you can see the circumstances that only 400 of his 600 men went with him. And the force they went after was surely a pretty big force. The only way we know the number of the Amalekites is, verse 17, is, is rather interesting when it says, that David struck them, and not a man escaped except 400. Whoa! Not a man escaped except 400 means there were a whole lot more than 400. When David fell upon them like a lightning bolt, they didn't expect and regained back every single man, woman, child, servant, wife, possession, bundle of grain, personal valuables, Everything, nothing was lacking. Plus, whole herds were given as a bonus of grace. David's spoil, it's called. Does it encourage you as it ought to 
that the man who was called, the man after God's heart, took 16 whole months off from prayer. Didn't write a psalm. Apparently didn't worship. You know, if he'd been at Westminster and and we'd missed him for 16 months and we called him up, I don't know how many times, and said, hey, we've missed you, where are you, and so on and so on, and and he just adamantly refused to come or, or respond, we'd probably would have removed him from the membership list, I'm sure. Because we'd say, he's not interested. He's forsaken the Lord. But when this man can come back in penitent prayer and say, Lord, I've got nothing. I've ruined everything. I turn to you because I have nothing else. Let my prayer vacation come to an end. This man met the Lord his God in a wonderful and gracious reunion. I say to you, if there's anything in your life that seems like this, anything that has made your pride in knowing how to figure things out and do it on your own to be just stripped away and shown to be folly. Maybe it's time that you acknowledge that you've hit rock bottom. And I hope you can acknowledge with David that the rock you've hit is your God, our Father. We have to be dragged to repentance. Sometimes we have to be shown like David by a miserable stroke of misfortune that we've lived foolishly and prayerlessly. And if there's someone here that's in the midst of this right now, maybe Ziklag-type ashes are in their mouth and the smoke is rising around them of the ruins they've made of something. A relationship, a job, a responsibility, a family. Father, would you call that one in the simplicity of the prodigal son to strengthen themselves in the Lord their God? And would you lead them forward by whatever next steps you have to see the goodness that you hold in store for those who will cling to you in humble faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.